chapter 4. The Ten Commandments. I was raised on a lie. So were you. It's a lie that we are all tempted to believe, but God clearly teaches us is not true. The lie is this, humanity is naturally good. That is a whopper of a lie. I know we already touched on this in chapter 2 with the discussion of the fall and the curse and all its consequences, but our culture promotes the idea that if humans could just get their acts together and love each other, we could save the world from itself. According to this train of thought, you should watch out for yourself, pursue your dreams, and be the best version of yourself. As nice as these ideas might seem, they're just not in the Bible, these are not the facts. After the fall in the Garden of Eden, God knew we needed help to reconnect with Him. We just learned about the story of Abraham and the importance of faith. Now let's settle back into the Bible to learn more. Brace yourself because we're about to cover a couple hundred years of Bible history, but the historical context is important. Let's talk about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac, Abraham's son, had two kids, Jacob and Esau. In the Bible, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And yes, he was in the habit of changing people's names to establish new identities. The nation of Israel is named after him. Jacob then had many sons and grandsons, whose families eventually became the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those boys was named Joseph. He was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt, but he was later promoted to a position much like that of a vice president. Later, a terrible famine ravaged the land of Israel, and out of concern for his family, Joseph brought them to live in Egypt. I told you we were going to fly through this, but it's a fascinating story. You can read it beginning in Genesis 37. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, the descendants of Israel grew to three million people all from Abraham. Their growing population sent the Egyptians into a panic because they were afraid of being overthrown. Acting out of a fear of being outnumbered, the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. The Egyptian slaveholders were cruel and demanding, and the Israelites cried out to God for help. Congratulations, class. You just learned 500 years of Jewish history. Moses. Meet Moses. I won't go into too much detail about Moses here, but his story is amazing and exciting, so you'll want to add his story from the book of Exodus to your reading list. Moses was born a Hebrew, but he was adopted by the Egyptian pharaoh's daughter when he was just a baby. Even so, Moses retained a loyalty to his Hebrew-Jewish heritage. While walking around Egypt one day, Moses witnessed the brutality of an Egyptian slaveholder who was violently beating a Hebrew slave. In an attempt to protect the slave, Moses impulsively struck and killed the slaveholder. Now panicked, Moses buried the dead slaveholder in the sand. The pharaoh, who was essentially the king of Egypt, found out about the murder and was so angry that he tried to kill Moses, so Moses fled to a land called Midian where he was welcomed by a priest. He settled with the priest's family and eventually married the priest's daughter, and they had two sons. Time passed and the pharaoh died, but the Israelites remained enslaved. Then one day, Moses had one of the weirdest experiences of his life. He was outside in the middle of nowhere watching over his goats and sheep when he suddenly saw a bush that was on fire, but not turning into ash. We usually refer to this story as Moses and the burning bush. God presented himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush as a unique, supernatural way for Moses to understand that he was going to hear directly from God. As Moses and God began talking, God told Moses, 
I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, Exodus 3, 7, and 8. God wanted to free the Israelites, bring them home, and bless them in the land he had promised to give them. A reluctant Moses agreed to return to the new Egyptian pharaoh and demand freedom for the Israelites. Moses did exactly that, and let's just say that it didn't go too well for him. To no one's surprise, the pharaoh refused Moses and his request repeatedly, so God sent a series of plagues to convince the pharaoh to change his mind. These plagues were disgusting, at least they grossed me out. Bodies of water turned into blood, frogs and locusts swarmed the land, disease ravaged and killed the livestock, and other horrible things cursed the Egyptians. God chose these particular afflictions because every one of those plagues was related to an Egyptian god that God was discrediting. Finally, after the tenth and final plague, the death of all Egyptian firstborn children, the Pharaoh took the hint and let Moses and the newly freed Israelites leave, but then Pharaoh changed his mind. Moses and the Israelites were camped in front of a huge lake called the Red Sea with nowhere to run when they saw the Egyptian army coming after them. The Egyptian army was the greatest superpower in the world during this time in history, so you can imagine the Israelites must have been freaking out. Miraculously, God helped Moses part the Red Sea to clear a path through the middle so the Israelites could walk through to the other side. The Egyptians followed the Israelites into the sea, but the walls of water came crashing down behind the Israelites. God wiped out the entire Egyptian army and set the Israelites free just as he'd promised Moses he would. Spiritually, the Israelites were understandably not in the best of shape at this point. God saw that their miserable time in Egypt had caused them to lose sight of Abraham's strong faith, and God realized they no longer knew how to interact with him or even with each other. They had been in a foreign land with foreign gods, and nothing about their culture had encouraged a relationship between the Israelites and God. So God called Moses to a meeting on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, where he gave Moses what would be known as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are timeless, universal instructions designed to help the Israelites flourish. You can find the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Chances are that you've probably heard at least a few of them. I'll share the scripture with you and discuss what we as Christ followers are supposed to do with them. God tells Moses, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a big, big deal. This means the God of the Bible is the only one true God. It's like God's telling the Israelites, frog God, nope. Sun God, nope. Pharaoh, no, I alone am God. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. In other words, don't make an idol of a cow and worship the cow. Don't idolize wealth and worship money. Worship God only. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Don't abuse or misuse God's name. There are at least a couple of implications with this commandment. One, don't misuse it. Any use of his name that brings dishonor to him or to his character or is said in an irreverent manner is taking the holiness of his name in vain. 
Secondly, failing to perform an oath or a vow taken in his name indicates a lack of reverence for God. For instance, if you say something like this, listen man, I swear to God, you need to be careful because you are taking an actual oath to God. Sometimes, like in a wedding, it's perfectly appropriate to take a vow in God's name, but you never do so lightly. You don't casually throw it around. You don't say, oh my God, that's hilarious. Why? Because if I can defame your name, I can defame your character. If I can make your name a joke, I can make your character a joke. God is very, very protective of his name because he doesn't want confusion about his good character and his love for his people. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We call this commandment the Sabbath principle, which is the idea that we set aside a day to rest and put God first traditionally before the start of the work week again. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Why is this commandment so important? Simply because we learn to interact with God by interacting with our parents. Keep in mind here that the Bible does not say to honor your father and mother only if they're the best parents ever. To honor your parents is to be willingly and respectfully under their authority even when you don't always agree with them. If you throw a fit every time mom and dad tell you to do something you don't like, you will throw a fit every time God tells you to do something you don't like. You shall not murder. This is always a good principle. I think it's safe to say that in no culture has this ever been considered a generally good idea. You shall not commit adultery. This is also a good principle. Human relationships teach us about our relationship with God. This shows God's desire for us to only let him, as our creator, define and direct us. God's heart is faithful, true, and dedicated. Ours should be as well. You shall not steal. This is another law that holds true pretty much universally across cultures. God is identified as our provider repeatedly throughout scripture, and he wants us to seek him in times of need. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The Bible says that lies are the native tongue of the devil, John 8:44. When someone tells a lie, they're speaking devilies. God says we are not to interact with people using the language of the devil. Instead, we speak the truth to one another in love. We speak psalms, encouragements, and spiritual songs to each other, Ephesians 5.19. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, means to desire what belongs to another. God wants his people to have an attitude of gratitude, and you cannot covet and be grateful at the same time. It's not possible for me to jealously want to take the keys of your brand new GMC Denali. 4x4 pickup truck with retracting floorboards, power gate, adjustable foot pedals, and high-tech everything and still be grateful for my 2008 Yukon at the same time. I'm going to resent what I have because I want what you have. I can't covet your wife, job, income, or your house because jealousy and gratitude cannot coexist. You may be thinking, so the Bible is a book of do's and don'ts? Well, kind of. Do follow God's command. Don't rebel against it. It's difficult to wrap our minds around the concept of obeying so many laws. My biggest fear is that after having read the Ten Commandments, you'll think you need to radically change your behavior in order to follow Him.
I want to follow God, so I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to chew tobacco, I'm not going to. Let me stop you there. God is looking for something different. Let's look at a few of the things he is looking for from you. Love God. There is absolutely no way to obey God perfectly. You would have to be Jesus to do that. A fair question would be, well, what am I supposed to do then? How do I handle all these laws? Refusing to commit murder or adultery seems doable, but if it's natural for me to covet, how on earth am I not supposed to covet? Well, thankfully, Jesus told us what to do in Matthew chapter 22, my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Jesus was always arguing with these people called the Sadducees and the Pharisees who thought they followed God's law perfectly. One of them, who was a so-called expert in the law, tried to test Jesus with this question in Matthew 22:36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answered him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, Matthew 22:37. Today, Jesus would look at us and say, Quit trying to get all the rules right and focus on loving me. Step one to following God is simple. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Radically obey God. If step one is to love him, step two is to radically obey him. Later in John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. That doesn't necessarily mean living like you're Amish. Isaiah 64, 6 says, Our righteousness adherence to the rules, uprightness, acts of goodness is like filthy rags repugnant, because he does not ask us to fulfill a bunch of dos and don'ts out of obligation to his law. In fact, we can't be perfect. We will always be walking hypocrites if we claim to be perfectly righteous. He wants us to respond to him out of love for him as Lord over our lives. If we love him, our behavior will align accordingly. One of my favorite sayings is that behavior will never generate love. Love always alters behavior. Anything that isn't done out of a love for God is meaningless to him. Radical obedience looks like radical love of your neighbor. Instead of allowing yourself to be consumed with your wants, needs, and concerns, you will put the interests of others above your own like Christ did. Radical obedience is loving the people who hate you. Radical obedience looks like radical involvement, radical compassion, radical mercy, radically bearing the burdens of another person. Love will alter your behavior. The law hangs on you loving your neighbor as you love yourself. You are yielding to God even as you yield to others. Maybe you're thinking, I get it. Christ followers want to follow and obey God, but what's the purpose of following so many rules? Let's unpack God's purpose behind the Ten Commandments. The purpose of the Ten Commandments. Just like we talked about back in chapter 2, Christians believe that humanity is inherently sinful and flawed because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. We perfectly reflected God until we rebelled. Because of the fall and because it is our nature, we are rebellious. That is our sinful condition, our fallen condition. Now let's think about this for a minute. If our culture is designed and managed by sinners and we live with sinners and we've all been sinned against because it's part of the human experience, it stands to reason that we are naturally inclined to be sinful. We do not instinctively pursue God or do what's right. All human beings naturally drift away from the holiness of God, not toward it. Let's just look at our own humanity. What does a toddler do when a toy is taken from him or her? 
They hit cry, yank it right back, or my favorite, they melt into a puddle of despair right before your eyes. They're not taught to do that, at least I hope not. They don't want to share because children are inherently selfish. We have to teach children to share and to be kind and to be good because it's not instinctual for us to be good. Just like we discussed in chapter 2, it's instinctual for us to sin. We're like Tarzan. Remember the story of Tarzan. Tarzan was the son of a British lord and lady who were marooned on the coast of Africa by pirates. His parents both died when he was a baby, and the story goes that a tribe of apes took him in and raised him as one of their own. The apes weren't jerks for doing this. It was actually pretty nice of them, if you think about it. And it's not like they set out to decivilize Tarzan. They were just doing their ape thing, running on their knuckles, killing each other over mates, eating raw meat, and throwing poo at each other. Tarzan was raised by these apes, so he naturally acted like an ape until someone, a British lady named Jane, came into his life and taught him otherwise. Jane taught Tarzan to be who he was meant to be. She taught him how to eat properly, how to have proper hygiene, and I can only assume she taught him not to throw poo at other people. Jane helped Tarzan by leading him away from how he was raised and introducing him to the life he was created to live. Just like children need parents and Tarzan needed Jane, we need God. We were designed in God's image to reflect his godliness, but because we are sinful, we need the commandments to guide us in how to live. I'll give you a personal example. For many years, Heidi and I had a house full of teenagers, and every time we ate, there was a food fight on some level. It was like a pack of lions attacking a gazelle. When we'd order a pizza, we didn't serve it, we threw it in the air, and the kids ate it before it even had a chance to hit the ground. Their instinct was to be selfish, narcissistic, and self-preserving, so Heidi and I would have to bring in godliness. We would intervene and guide them to do what's right by identifying the sin and correcting it. Take one piece at a time and eat it at a respectable pace. Save some for your brother. He's not home from L-Cross practice yet. Your dad also needs to eat, so let's save some food for him. Don't hit your sister over a slice of pizza or ever because that's wrong, and if you make her mad, she will annihilate you. Be gentle and share. Godliness has to be imported because our instinct is sin. The commandments are the guidance we desperately need because godliness doesn't come naturally to us anymore. Before the commandments, we didn't know it was wrong to feel jealous. Before Jane, Tarzan didn't know he could walk upright. The commandments protect us by setting boundaries. Don't steal, don't murder. These are the rules that keep civilizations in order. By forbidding murder, God protects both the potential victim and the would-be murderer. Don't steal. If you want your neighbor's 65-inch flat-screen TV, which you shouldn't because we learned that's covetous, buy your own. I'll sum it up neatly. The commandments instruct us, protect us, and restore us. The commandments restore us by holding our actions accountable to God, and the commandments point us toward His heart and mind. God gave us these commandments to teach us how to flourish, and in order to flourish, we must learn to connect with Him and how to live cooperatively with one another. A nation of people that murders one another would not flourish. A nation of people that steals from one another would not flourish. He knew we'd never figure it out on our own, so the commandments guide us back to Him. We need parameters in our lives just like a child does.
A loving parent sets boundaries and guidelines to ensure the safety and well-being of their children. They don't just set rules to control their kids' behavior and make them miserable. As kids grow and mature, parental boundaries slowly begin to make sense. Oh, I guess I shouldn't hit my sister because it hurts her and she might hit me back. I guess I shouldn't eat my brother's slice of pizza because if I'm kind to him, he'll be kind to me most of the time at least. Similarly, our Heavenly Father, motivated by love, does the same for us. He sets boundaries that may initially seem impossible to live within, but we learn in time that they're designed to help us flourish. In Tarzan terms, the commandments tell us we are not who we think we are. We're living in the wrong place and in the wrong way. We're not supposed to be living in the jungle like Tarzan. We're supposed to be living in peace with God. His purpose is not to shame us, but to instruct us how to live and how to find Him. The Ten Commandments illustrate that we're sinners, and when we finally understand and accept that, we have the commandments right there to guide us back to Him. This newfound understanding ultimately motivates us to find God, pursue His heart, and know His mind. Headspace. Connect with God. I find it super interesting that God gave us laws as one way of communicating who He is. Flip a few pages back and take a look at the Ten Commandments. What evidence do you see of God's love in the laws He gave to humanity? The Ten Commandments were given in the Old Testament, but they don't change in the New Testament. They actually get more explanation and take a more personal form. Paul states, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Romans 2.14-15 The reason all humans relate to most of the Ten Commandments is because God didn't just have them written on an ancient tablet, but it is in our hearts. The way we express this thought today is our conscience. It's all the same thing, but it's not just a biological phenomenon. It's our design by our Creator. In what areas might you move towards God's fulfilling design for your life by listening to your conscience and considering His commandments? Connect with others. Since every single human is sinful and no one is perfect, it's not just our own shortcomings we have to deal with, but those of our friends, strangers, and even enemies. Romans 12:17 through 21 states, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God wants us to trust that he will be the judge of all of humanity. It's not a sinful human's job to judge another sinful human. It's the job of a perfect and faultless God to make things right. Who in your life do you need to forgive and hand over to God? Spend some time releasing bitter feelings and anger and talking to God about letting him handle the situation how he sees fit. 
What does this mean for you? God wants to take care of our sin. The Bible says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Romans 3:25 through 26. The reason you haven't been hit with a bolt of lightning after your most reckless year in college is because of God's forbearance or patience. God is waiting for us to recognize who He is and what He has done for us. He is perfect and wants to give us that same perfect status before Him by taking on our punishment for sin so we don't have to. If you are ready, maybe take a few minutes to reflect on how much this God loves you and thank Him for that.